Nobody has more respect for women than I do. Nobody. Hillary Clinton wants to abolish it, believe me. She wants to abolish our Second Amendment. I think they didn't deny it. I don't think anybody denied it. Other presidents did not call, did write letters, and some presidents didn't do anything. Many people have come out and said, I'm right. You really do have to ask yourself, where does it stop? Hello and welcome to Fallacious Trump, the podcast where we use the insane ramblings of some human malware to explain logical fallacies. I'm your host, Jim. And I'm your other host, Chris. Anyway, Wait, what lo- the fuck? You're not Mark. Who are you and what have you done with Mark? Did you not get the email? What email? Okay, so Mark's currently in the States um, and he's basically got an interview to become Kellyanne Conway's replacement as chief apologist to all tele- television networks that aren't called Fox News. Okay, that makes sense. So he's asked me to come along instead. Fair enough. And you are? Uh, so I am Chris. Uh, you may know me from episode 37, where I set the questions for fake news. And I also play Man Asleep on a Plane on the film Nothing to Declare, which is another Jim and Mark production, which is available on all good YouTube channels. Well, Mark's YouTube channel. Yeah, that's a, that's a fair um, description of your entire experience up to now. Yes. At I, least involved I, with us, anyway. You've got me on IMDb, so, uh, you know, I am an actor, um, and I am therefore a professional. Yes. So the true story is uh, Mark is away this week. Uh, Chris is an old friend of mine, so uh, this is a a guest appearance. So. Yeah, something like that. Yes. <laughs> we, we'll see whether it actually ever gets repeated, whether I'm good enough to come back. Or in- whether this even makes it to air. Yeah. Oh, but, but fair enough, yeah. <laughs> so, a logical fallacy is an error in reasoning that results in bad or invalid arguments. The logical fallacy we're looking at this week is the politician's fallacy. That's also known as the politician's syllogism. I had to look up how to pronounce that. And also the appeal to desperation. So, yeah, the politician's fallacy is, I think it's a kind of specific version of equivocation, which is where a word is used in two different ways. The The classic version of this fallacy is uh, when, a, when politicians say, something has to be done, my solution is something, therefore my solution is what has to be done. And in the kind of equivocation way, something is being used in, in two different ways in that. So when, when you say something has to be done, what you're talking about is an effective solution has to be found. But when you say my solution is something, you're using something to mean just anything. It's, it's, it's not nothing. So by kind of comparing those two somethings, which actually mean totally different things, you're claiming that your solution is the right solution regardless of actually whether it's effective or the right thing to do or it's a bit like saying something must be done x is something therefore let's do x even though x might not be the right thing absolutely yeah so in our our first example from trump comes from a speech that he did um fairly early on in his presidency and he said this china's been taking out from 300 billion to 500 billion dollars a year. Billion, not million, billion. Think of what, 500 billion dollars as we've rebuilt China. But now it's a different ball game. Somebody had to do something with China. President Obama should have done it. President Bush should have done it. President Clinton should have done it. They all should have done it. Frankly, they all should have done a lot of things that we're doing right now. (laughs) 
So if you look at it, nobody did it, so I'm doing it, and that's what's going to happen. We're doing well. So now we're taking in billions and billions of dollars from China, when in the past we never got 10 cents. We never got money. We never got anything. So Trump is claiming that his tariffs, which were his solution to the problem that he identified of China taking billions of dollars out of the American economy, was the solution because something had to be done. Someone had to do something. He's and never really understood the concept something. of what tariffs are, does he? Really, no. He has no clue what tariffs are. He, he, and I mean, he doesn't un- understand trade at all or trade deficits. He keeps saying. This is so many times he said this that China have taken five hundred billion dollars out of out of America, or that America has lost five hundred billion dollars a year to China. First of all, America has bought stuff from China, yeah. <laughs> so they they paid the money, they got stuff, and it's never been five hundred billion. The most it's ever been, when you only choose goods and not um, services, which uh, China buys more services from the US than the US buys from China. But when you only take into account goods, the, the highest it's been is $419 billion in 2018. So while he was president. Um, <laughs> before that, the highest it got to was $375 billion. So, and that's not... That's not the US giving that money to China. They're getting something in return for it. So economists agree that trade deficits and trade surpluses are neither inherently good nor bad. It's very contextual and it depends on what the situation is. And and obviously the reason is because in China they can afford to make things cheaper because of their probably very poor labor laws and other things yeah. that mean that, that that they're able to other produce things, goods kind of glossing over other the things. whole human rights yeah. issue concentration yeah. camps and, you know other things like other things that that it's cheaper to buy stuff from china so so that's why people in america buy stuff from china um including trump when he buys the ties and the hats and all that stuff from china so so by putting tariffs on chinese goods Trump is trying to make it more expensive for Americans to buy stuff from China and therefore they will buy those things from America when actually there isn't the manufacturing base in America to to make the volume of stuff that people buy from China. So it doesn't help. It also doesn't cost China anything (laughs) because the people who pay the tariffs uh, are the, the American importers and ultimately the American people when they buy the stuff because the price is usually just passed on to the to the consumer. And he also says in that, because I know, you know, this is not necessarily specifically about the fallacy, but I always like to point out when he's lying. Um, <laughs> he said that we now t- take billions in from China and we never got any money from them before at all. It is true that in 2018, his tariffs raised the amount that the US Treasury got from tariffs on Chinese goods to $23 billion. But in the seven or eight years prior to that, it averaged around 12 or $13 billion a year anyway. So it was a significant increase, but it was absolutely not true to say that they never got any money from China, from tariffs on Chinese goods before. It's It's always been a lot of money. Although I suppose you do have to say that he obviously he's managed to get a little bit more, but as you say, it, the way in which it works is not – he simplified it hugely, misunderstood it hugely, and is basically claiming credit for a whole lot of nothing. 
yeah. a whole lot of not he, very much. <laughs> he also regularly claims that if the US didn't give China all this trade, which is why they're you know so scared by the tariffs, that the Chinese economy would completely collapse, which is complete bollocks because the Chinese economy, their GDP is about $14 trillion. So even if it was $500 billion, it would be a, you know, a, a significant chunk, but but still a very small amount compared to the whole economy in China. China's um, kind of a big country. They are. got quite, they a lot well. of, quite a lot of people from memory. Yeah. Yeah. And they look quite a diverse economy now under, uh, under the Winnie the Pooh lookalike. Um, yeah. We're never going to China after this, are we? <laughs> we're never <laughs> going to be allowed in. going there. That's uh, fine. Nah, that's uh, but yeah, um, they, um, but, they but, do well. They, they do well from lots of different countries. They're not reliant on, on the US for their economy. So You, you uh, kind yeah. of get the feeling they'd probably be all right. Yeah, absolutely. Even if... Trump decided, right, we're just not getting anything from China ever again. They'd, they'd probably still be okay. Of course, the, the other thing we haven't mentioned, or you, you mentioned when you were explaining, of course, all that China did is then add a whole load of tariffs to a whole load of American goods, which yep. actually made them more difficult to sell in China, which is, as we've kind of just explained the last couple of minutes, a quite a large market. Which um, is why um, Trump had to bail out the farmers, because they couldn't sell their soybeans and corn to China. Um, yeah, and they they have started, but now buying uh, large amounts of soybean and corn again. But um, yeah, the the farmers suddenly lost a lot of where their agriculture was going, and and yeah, so a lot of the that money that the treasury got in from from the tariffs from the American people went to bailouts of mostly large farms rather than the the small farms that were struggling under the the lack of money coming in. Yeah, yeah. But that's Trump all over, isn't it? Help out mm. the big boys. Don't be so worried about the uh, the mom and pop small organisations because well, nobody really cares about them. They're just small no, and insignificant. This has to way it feels. So, yeah, uh, fallacy-wise, this was uh, a clear case of um, Trump saying something had to be done about this. I did something that everyone else should have done what I did because that was clearly the right thing when all he did was something that wasn't especially effective and didn't address the what wasn't even really a problem. So, yeah. Our second Trump example comes from an interview that he did with the Washington Post. He was asked a question about the Muslim ban and he talked about the um, terror attacks in Paris. This was back in 2015 and in San Bernardino. And he said, so I said something has to be done. So I said, we're going to call for a temporary ban on them coming in. So... His response to the problem of terror attacks, some of which in the world are perpetrated by Muslims, was to ban Muslims as a whole, (laughs) which is an extreme response and not necessarily appropriate, um, (laughs) if I'm being quite kind. So, yeah, it was it was a something has to be done. This is something response. Yeah, and it, 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 the sad thing is, of course, is, it, although Trump kind of almost became this kind of the poster boy for all of this, if, if you can use that expression, this is something that you're seeing repeated around the world. Uh, the moment there does seem to be a bit of a, a an issue with religion being used as uh, uh, basically to terror, acts of terrorism around the world. And it's not just Muslims, it's all of the different religions 
all at some time have all used religion as a reason for having a war basically um mm. and yeah i mean it's one of the most common reasons basically <laughs> yeah it's 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 usually either territory or religion and often the reason that they think they have the right to the territory is, is religion, religion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, exactly it just seems to be oh yeah but no uh, our our side uh, you know the one that one i believe in is fine the one that you believe in isn't um, as as a complete nut atheist, uh, I tend to think all organised religions are a bit strange um, and uh, don't really have an awful lot to base on. So you know, it is it is a belief. It is it can, so to therefore kind of have a whole like set of rules based on a belief to me is quite bizarre. To then to like have even more rules to say that that religion's right, that religion's wrong. Is even more is another is another layer of bizarreness. Yeah, and yeah, it, it just doesn't quite seem right to say that every single Muslim is a terrorist because they're not. They're very obviously not. No, it's not. It's not even a hard question, really. It's it's you know it's not appropriate to to target an entire religion or or a race or any group of people for the actions of a small number of those people. Yeah, that this this was not an effective response. You could always ban all presidents from now on because one president's pretty awful. Yeah. I mean, it's not a bad idea. You know, it's worth a go. I, I, you know. As a percentage, to be honest, the you know, of the <laughs> there's a high absolutely number, there's a high awful number people is a much higher <laughs> number. presidents are higher. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, ban the election in November. Yeah. Just don't bother. <laughs> and now is the time, I think, for Chris's British politics corner. Oh, I, I get my own version oh, yeah. of that. It's bespoke. I, I'm honoured. Yeah. I'm utterly honoured. <laughs> now, I, I know, because usually I think you and you and Mark spend quite some time putting these things together. That's point. the impression we like to give. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're probably at this point going, uh... Chris, I don't know what you're going to talk about. And there's a reason for that. I'm, I'm kind of been keeping it in surprise. So really what I'm going to do here is I'm thinking, right, I'm here as a guest host. I'm probably only going to be here once, given the fact that I have a feeling that come November, Trump might not be around and therefore this podcast kind of comes to a bit of a natural end. So... Yeah, uh, well, you might invite you back to you might invite you back to the Christmas special, perhaps. But um, uh, you know, I have to do a good job first. So I just thought, right, I'm going to swing for the fence. Although, given this is the British politics corner, it's probably more apt to say six and out. So I am going to try and make the case that Brexit is a politician's fallacy. Okay. Now, so- I, I'm I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good start. That's a good start. So, I mean, I, I kind of look back in terms of, you know, 10, 15, maybe even 20 years ago, when Euroscepticism was kind of something that kind of rumbled a bit on the Tory backbenches. Um, but, you know, that's basically where it stayed. And you kind of have to look at how or why did it go from being a bit of a right-wing kind of complaint mumble-grumble into something that became mainstream and something that therefore made 52% of those people who voted decide 
that actually they wanted to be out rather than in. Now, I do appreciate that Brexit means different things to different people, but to me... Brexit surely just means Brexit, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Depends on who you talk to. Um, mm-hmm. But to me, one of the key... I, I think the key thing that changed people's mind was immigration again. I know we've spoken about it just now, but in, in this case, it, it was one of those things that, you know, you go back to 2004 when you had the uh, Eastern European accession countries uh, being admitted to the EU. And in the UK, we allowed free movement right from the very start. And really, it's a question of, of thinking, you, from then on, you begin to see the seeds of grumbling becoming much more vocalised, much more mainstream, much more politicised. Now, I, I, I think a lot of the politicians were probably either too scared or, or, or too media trained to kind of mention immigration specifically regularly. Although there were examples of that, particularly during the uh, the Brexit uh, campaign, you had that that poster of uh, of Turkey. I think you've mentioned that on one of your previous podcasts, haven't you? The one one where you know we're going to allow Turkey into the EU, and yeah. there were certain plays upon that. But the most of the damage, I believe, was was actually something that was done by the media more than politicians. You look at how migrant issues immigration was a big topic on the front pages of many of the tabloids during the brexit campaign uh i've actually got some statistics here and uh, we'll put them up on the show notes just so that you can uh, see where they come from but the daily express mentioned immigration in a negative connotation 34 times during the brexit uh, campaign the daily mail mentioned it 31 this times. is the front page the front the page express yeah exactly because they because they mention immigration in a negative way in 34 times in every issue <laughs> you're it's right not... <laughs> Head, the, yeah. the front page no front the big, page headline, front yeah. page the biggest block capitals that you can possibly see the sort of thing that when every, every time you go into a supermarket or a news agent or anywhere that sells newspapers you know you cannot help but see this uh, so, so the Daily Express 34, the Daily Mail 31, the Sun 15, Telegraph 12. I can kind of go on to some of the other ones as well. But, uh, you know, it, it, it really was something that, that really, to me, I, I remember as someone who obviously voted uh, to remain. Uh, the main reason I did that is because my wife actually is Eastern European and, and, and I didn't want to get divorced from her. I kind of like her. Um, I wanted her to be able to stick around. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it, it is one of those things that I saw that frequently. I saw those headlines and I think a lot of them were also false. A lot of them were not correct information. Um, I mean, some of the things in terms of saying, you know, Im- immigrants you know, coming over here for, for NHS holidays, coming over mm-hmm. here um, for uh, to claim benefits, coming over here, you know, all these negative things. And, and the number, numbers that are often put out seem to me to be grossly exaggerated. 
Now, I do still think that the, the Remain campaign at the end of the day was a pile of crap, and they did little to correct all the many f- fallacies and the many false uh, face false information, fake news, headlines, and things plastered on the side of the yeah. Place. I think I think the Remain campaign just kind of assumed that they were going to win without really trying. That's part of it. Is they they thought it was just so obviously going to be the status quo that was what people wanted. <laughs> yeah. Um, that yeah that they didn't have to do that much. But I still look back back upon this as to how did we get from. You know that that those small beginnings to, to to the point where we are now leaving the EU, and I do think immigration is front and centre. I do think the whole thing about therefore leaving the EU in order to control immigration is, in my opinion, an appeal to desperation, because something has to be done. Right, let's leave the EU, despite the fact that EU does have many many benefits um particularly economic uh, benefits but no we're going to throw all of that out because we don't like the eastern europeans coming over here with their work ethic and taking our supposed jobs yeah or being really lazy and taking our benefits or they being... can't quite decide which one it is no it's, it's one or the other <laughs> I have yeah. to say the, the work ethic joke is not mine. It is one that I've nicked off uh, of off, off I Got News For You, and I can't remember the name of the comedian who said it. So I, I do apologise for that, uh, but I just want to make sure that uh, that credit, credit is passed. Credit's due. Credit yeah. is credit due. It's not my um, joke. Yeah, so, I mean, I agree, frankly. Um, and, and I think that Brexit became a kind of something that solved a lot of different issues chief among them immigration but the but every part of the the levers campaign kind of kept on bringing up new somethings that we need to do something about like you know brussels having control over our laws and and often complete nonsense and and actual lies but yeah it was like this is a problem here's another problem brexit is the something that we need to do about it uh, does that mean i win I mean that's that's not a competition. We're in this together. So okay, fair enough. But I'll, I'll, I'll Every, take everybody that. wins. Everybody <laughs> wins. But uh, well, yes. I mean, I, I concentrate on the immigration, but I think you're totally right. You know, there there were so many other reasons. Um, I was scared you were going to reject it, which is why I just went for the big one. But <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there are as you say that there are so many falsehoods. I believe that were put out during the uh, the Brexit campaign. And you say something needs to be done about this. Something needs to be, and, and, and actually, yeah, I, I I do acknowledge that the EU is not the greatest organisation in the world, and it does need some change, and it does need probably even you go as far as saying reform, but to be out of it to me is a illogical, uh, nationalistic thing appealing to a small number of people which became a mainstream due to misinformation and 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 lies and 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 unfortunate headlines on front pages of many tabloids uh, so now it's time for the fallacy in the wild normally we would have a a sting from mark here but obviously he's away so chris is he is, is he not done one no he's not no he was expecting you to do one ah oh, but i'm not in a band yeah but he's only a drummer well, there is that. Um, okay. Um, apologies for the singing in advance. Not that Mark's 
fantastic at singing either but uh, i'm going a cappella, so um this is going to be even worse but it is actually a quite a good segue into, into into the first fallacy that i'm going to try and try and uh, work on you okay right uh deep breath it's a fallacy a fallacy in the world it's the finest fallacy the world has ever seen okay yeah singing wise not great but there is a reason why I've done a football chant, because this time uh, I went big with Brexit. I'm going big again. I'm going to take on the Premier League. Now, I also have to appreciate, Jim, it's not exactly your area of expertise. No, you're going to need to, you're going to, need to explain this <laughs> yeah. in more detail than your Brexit one, because I was with you straight away for that. But this one, <laughs> I know nothing about football at all or soccer. And um, so, yeah, you're going to have to explain, well, explain soccer, then explain the fallacy. Explain so, soccer. It's, yeah. a game, it's a game with yeah. a ball and yeah. 22 men and you kick the ball into a net and that could get a goal. And, uh, yeah, let's not go through that. Uh, I'm going to assume that people kind of vaguely understand the concept of football and the concept of professional football uh, and can really go on from there. It really starts in England specifically. And uh, this is all going back to the 1980s uh, when there was hooliganism was rife in the game. Um, There were a number of disasters in which people went to football games and never came home. People were dying. It was some really nasty things were happening. Two big disasters that happened in the UK. There were Hillsborough and the Bradford Fire. Um, Really, really poor situation something needed to be done the grounds were in terrible state the clubs were in a terrible state politicians were getting involved and yeah something had to be done now that something began with six men five members uh, five chairmen in fact of football clubs and one television executive because what they realized is that the amount of money that was coming into football needed to increase. It needs to increase to pay for stadium upgrades. It needs to increase to make the game more attractive to more people. Uh, and the, at the time, football, the way football was shown on television, it was being under, you know, they weren't getting enough money in. It was being undersold. And these six men realized that. And basically that night over the course of dinner, they had a profound impact on English football from there on. Uh, now, I'm going to play a clip. Uh, it's from a documentary called The Night That Football Changed Forever. So not just me who thinks this. And um, the person you're going to hear from is someone called uh, Irving Scholar, who is the chairman of Tottenham Hotspur, or as he was at the time. But it's quite an important element to this because it actually sows the seeds of how this uh, whole situation in the Premier League helps out with this fallacy and the appeal to desperation. Mansfield got as much as Manchester United and Lincoln got the same as Liverpool, which in a, in a sense was a bit daft because Lincoln and Mansfield weren't the clubs that the television companies wanted to show, but Liverpool and Manchester United clearly were. So you can see there that what, they're say- what he's saying there is the big clubs deserve more money than little clubs. Now, I I get that sport is a meritocracy and and if you do better, you should get more money. But as I'll explain in the next minute or two, they've gone well beyond that. 
Hmm. So basically what they did is they sell the TV rights. And over time, we've now got to the point where the TV rights for football are worth billions. We're on about the fourth or fifth contract. Uh, and it's slowly increased from, it was around about 4 million uh, at the time. It's now... It's now almost three billion. I mean, huge amounts of money has come into the game. But the Premier League is keeping the vast majority. And when I say vast, I mean really vast majority of it. So uh, the actual amount coming in is 2.5 billion. So 2.5 billion is shared by 22 clubs. 140 million is given to the other 70. Now, that is creating a massive disparity. And to me, that is an appeal to desperation because actually what they're doing is they're looking after a small number of clubs and not giving a monkeys about those other smaller ones. Um, and and it, it's, it, to me, it's quite sad. Uh, and, and I'll explain why. Um, this year, one club one professional club, actually went into liquidation. It no longer exists. That club was called Berry. It went into debts of £9.7 million, which I accept is quite a lot. But at the same time, the top premiership players, a single player, is earning £10 million plus a year. So you're thinking a club has gone out of existence for the wages of one player. And I also think the soul has been sucked out of football because it's now all about the money. With COVID, obviously, there's no crowds coming in. And that's created a real issue for those small clubs that actually depend upon those people coming through the gate. These clubs in the Premier League, they get all that TV money. They're fine. But despite supposedly being fine, one club, Arsenal, they actually announced that they were in negotiations to give their top striker wages of around £250,000 a week. That works out £30 million, more than Berry owed when they went into liquidation. That same week, they also announced 55 redundancies of normal staff. I think the souls come out of football. I think it all comes down to chasing money. And I think it's a small number of clubs and that is why it is an appeal to desperation. So the football was in such a state and the grounds were in such a state that something needed to be done, basically, in the... When was this? The 80s? It was late, late 80s. Late, late, so late the 80s. Premier League was formed in 92. So this was all... But it's all right. late 80s, early 90s. Late 80s, gets, early 90s. OK. And, and the something they did was, was forming the Premier League to try and bring the money... Well, more money into football as a whole. Yes. But then they gave it to... But then they, 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 they kept it. Tiny amount of clubs. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You can probably tell I don't support a team that's in the Premier League. <laughs> um, but, um, was QPR in the Premier League at some point? QPR, QPR were actually in the Premier League the year it was formed. And we were in the Premier League as recently as, 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 as five years ago. Um, okay. Not for very long. We went up and then probably went straight back down again. So this is not motivated by any bitterness or anything like that? <laughs> Well, actually, I mean, you've mentioned the team I saw at QPR. It used to be interesting. To me, you could, before all of this money came in, small clubs, you know, you could have a, a decent chance and you could actually perhaps win the FA Cup or, you know, and then there are, they had a chance. You always felt you had a chance. Right now, I think the chances of my club 
ever winning anything again under the current regime is diddly squat to zero. And that, to me, again, sport should always be, yeah, if you try hard or you train hard or you have a little bit of luck, you should have a chance. Yeah. And under this, you really, really don't because it's becoming a monopoly of super rich clubs. And another example of this is that they've actually formed this rule that if you have a decent youth player and we have what's known as an academy, so a kind of a higher level youth setup, we can take your player for nothing. And of course, the only clubs that can afford the academies are those in the premiership who have all that, that large amounts of money. There are a couple outside, but the vast majority of the ones are the clubs that have been in the premiership. For the, so again, that chance to bring up a, a decent youth player and maybe he gets in the first team and makes a difference, that's being taken away from, from the clubs as well. And it was under the threat of removing that 100... If either you allow us uh, to do this or we'll take away the 140 million. And that again, it right. just shows it's 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 all yeah. about us, us, us. The rich getting richer, um, and putting on this amazing show that's broadcast around the world, but limited to twenty two out of ninety two clubs. And then it becomes a vicious cycle that they're those those ones are constantly getting more money, improving, getting better players. Yeah. Okay. Well, I I feel like I understood some of that, so that's good. <laughs> that's a plus. <laughs> Our final example in the fallacy in the wild this week is actually kind of the origin of this fallacy because as you know informal fallacies are are the ones typically that didn't come from people like socrates but have built up over time people have noticed things that people do and and named them and uh, this clip from a an episode of the british tv comedy yes minister was the first time that this exact formula was was kind of noticed and and put out there and is is pointed to as the the origin of it so this is um sir arnold and sir humphrey two civil servants discussing their ministers and and the silly things they do when called on to actually deal with a problem and in this uh, instance um, Jim Hacker, the Prime Minister, has come up with a solution to deal with the problem of local governments and local councillors getting a bit uppity and, and, and wanting more power. It's the old logical fallacy. All cats have four legs. My dog has four legs. Therefore, my dog is a cat. <laughs> He's suffering from politicians' logic. Something must be done. This is something, therefore, we must do it. But doing the wrong thing is worse than doing nothing. I love Yes Minister. I really yeah, do. <laughs> it's um, a great, great series. I mean, the fact that um, it was 80, 82, 84? Yeah, yeah. That, that kind of era, Some, yeah. And then, of course, there was Yes Prime Minister, which followed on from it. But um, mm-hmm. it, it, it is still so valid today, even though it's, what, oh, yeah. 40 years old? Oh, my God. Well, little changes in, in British politics over the years, I find. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, no, it is absolutely brilliant. And, and Sir Arnold there talking about my, you know, my cat has four legs um, or all cats have four legs. My dog has four legs, therefore my dog is a cat. That's kind of a, a, actually a slightly different fallacy. That's technically affirming the consequent, which is where you say P, therefore Q, Q, therefore P, which is uh, kind of like if you said if it rained, the sidewalk would be wet. The sidewalk is wet, therefore it rained, which is not... It is a fallacy because there are other reasons that the sidewalk might be wet. And in the same way, cats have four legs. That doesn't imply that everything with four legs is a cat. 
but that's the his statement and it's and i don't i don't really see the com the the connection between that and what they then describe as politicians logic which is something has to be done this is something um i there's there's kind of a link but it's as i say i think it's more of an equivocation really but the interesting thing is sir arnold says at the end there you know sometimes doing nothing is actually better than doing something and what has been found in in research is that that's not necessarily the case and there's there was an interesting study done in new york university by a guy called patrick egan in 2013 who looked at different political issues and what people's general consensus for what you should do about them would be you have the status quo how things are at the moment and you offer two solutions to to make it better or or change it at least one of which is more of a left solution and one of which is more of a right solution so for example if you're looking at the issue of the the national debt the status quo would be to keep taxes and spending the same as they are now the left side would be to raise taxes cut military spending but keep health and education the same the right side would be cut spending on health and education keep taxes the same and uh, but don't cut military spending keep keep putting money into the army that kind of thing so what you might expect is that if the population in aggregate as a whole is more on the left side of an issue like that then if you're comparing the the left-hand solution to the status quo people would prefer the left-hand one and if you're comparing the status quo to the right-hand solution the right-wing solution people would prefer the status quo because it's on the left side of that but that's not actually necessarily how it works and in lots of cases in lots of different issues what people actually prefer is a change even if generally speaking people skew more left on an issue the the consensus is either left or right is better than keeping it how it is now which is kind of weird and and this was a, a study that that was called do something politics and double peaked policy preferences because easy for you to say <laughs> yeah they called it a single peak basically if most people prefer one over the other but when you get a double peak where the status quo is the least popular option and and actually people in general all prefer either a left or a right one you get two peaks on different sides of the the right left divide and yeah it does seem that in some cases in with some issues people prefer the idea of doing something even if it is kind of against what you would expect their political views would be as opposed to just doing nothing and keeping the status quo so maybe the politicians who who pick a something to do because something must be done are kind of doing the right not the right thing but doing what people would like them to do in a way the uh, consensus of the public may be that doing something regardless of what the something is is possibly better than leaving things how they are if the status quo isn't isn't ideal and when is when is the status quo ever ideal really so um yeah it seems like people are and, and to be honest it's probably why we in both our countries the us and uk continually swing between one one party and the other because it's never you know people are never happy with how things are so they think all right well let's let's try the other ones for a bit <laughs> <Yeah>. um, essentially <laughs> sometimes we try them for too long though <laughs> yeah yeah 
Yeah, sometimes just one term is too long. So, <clears throat> so we're gonna we're gonna play fake news, folks. I love the game. It's a great game. I understand the game as well as anybody. As well as anybody. Yes, it's time for fake news, the game where I read out three Trump quotes, two of which are real and one I made up, and Chris has to figure out which one is fake news. So what's the uh, current scorehouse Mark been doing? He is on 24 out of 56. I see. 42%, I think. So uh, certainly, you know, he has improved over those early days, but obviously, you know, he needs to improve. So something needs to be done. So basically he's brought me in instead. Yeah. Well, we'll see if that is the something that needed to be done. <laughs> and um, yeah, well, the, uh, yeah, you are playing on on Mark's behalf. So whatever happens here, uh, it's it's not really on you. It's he will he will bear the burden of it. So, um, well, well, these... te- te- you could argue, technically speaking, because he actually guessed correctly my yeah uh, my, my suggestions. So I'm actually on naught percent. That's true. Um, so so yeah. Maybe I wasn't the best choice, but we'll see. Well, you have the opportunity to bring that up to 50% with a single go. Which is better than 42%. Absolutely. So these statements are all from a a mad phone call that Trump had with Fox and Friends uh, when he was basically trying to draw attention away from the um, Democratic National Convention. And uh, and so he called into Fox and Friends for an hour and talked about all kinds of different weird stuff. Statement number one, is when uh, the the fox the friends I don't know what they are Ainsley and the and the gang um, they they said that Kamala Harris uh, was um, against the wall basically and Trump said those two hundred and eighty miles I built have stopped like hundreds of thousands of people Mexico is heavy heavy COVID territory they are highly infected I built the wall and that wall has stopped people from coming in if she said that and I know Sleepy Joe said it he said we should stop the wall and I might even tear down the wall he wants to tear down a wall that's the best border wall ever built in terms of the success of it in terms of the best ever built he wants to tear it down okay Um, okay (laughs) statement number two he said Amazon and other companies like it, they come and they drop all their mail into a post office. Not all of it, but a big percentage of it. And they say, here, you deliver it, you stupid people. You deliver it. And it costs us, every time they drop a package, it costs us like $3 to deliver the package for them. $3 a package. We're losing a fortune. I said, you've got to raise their rates. You're going to have to raise their rates. But Amazon, they build their big plant always near a post office. Right. And statement number three. What happens is I get other countries, other leaders, they call me up and they say, how do we talk to him? Because I have a good relationship with Kim Jong-un and they don't know how to deal with him, but I know. They say, you're the only one he listens to. Could you talk to him for us? And, you know, I hate to say it, but they're right. Nobody has a relationship with North Korea like I have and they've been trying for years to figure out how to talk to him. Okay. Three very different subjects. Uh, uh, yeah. These, these it was a wide-ranging hour of ranting. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and, uh, I, I, I do recall the some of the bits being played out uh, on British media. Unfortunately, none of these three were, were, were ones that I had actually uh, heard. I don't or, make or it seen. too easy for you. Uh, it would be nice. So, okay, let's let's go back through the, uh, the the three quotes then. So, the first one, he's kind of talking about the wall. He slips in his sleepy Joe. Uh, kind of uh, nickname. He does love a nickname, doesn't he? Nicknames yeah. are very big with Trump, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, but uh, that also could just be 
your sneaky way of uh, of trying to distract me. Um, he wants to tear down a wall that's the best border wall ever built. See, in some ways, that's actually the phrase that's that's kind of making me think that could be fake because he, he kind of stayed away from from boasting about the wall a lot recently because, of course, it's not been the greatest success. <laughs> But in ter- then he says the greatest wall ever built in terms of success. But he could still be, he's still stupid enough to say that sort of thing. Okay, let's look at the uh, the other one. So he's Amazon basically using the post office. Now, of course, in this country, Amazon don't use the post office; they deliver them themselves. I don't know what the model is that Amazon use over in the states. Um, every time they have a package, it costs us three dollars to deliver the package. Every time they drop it, uh, we're losing a fortune. Amazon build them. The bit that really bothers me there is, it, did he actually say, you stupid people? That's the bit that he, that, that's actually really quite, even for Trump, that's quite extreme. <laughs> okay. Um, number three, okay, he's gone North Korea again. Um, nobody has a relationship with North Korea like I have, and we've been trying for years. That, that, that's the one that sounds most, most like I think three is 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 real, so therefore I think it's a choice of choosing between one and two for me. Um, so Sleepy Joe, stupid people. Did he did he say stupid people? I think he's. I don't think he said stupid people. I think that's that's going a bit too far, even for him. So therefore, I think. Two is fake because his main thing on the post office has actually been more about the postal vote. And I think he wouldn't have missed the opportunity to have a go at that rather than go on about Amazon. So I'm going to say that number two is the fake one. One and three are the real quotes. Okay. Well reasoned. So uh, of the other two, of one or three, you the one that convinces you more is? Three. Number three. Okay. And number three is... Fake news. Oh, no. No, sorry, that's the one I made up. <laughs> I hate you. He, uh, yeah, well, fair enough. He, um, On behalf he of said, Mark, I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> he said something quite similar about Erdogan, uh, the Turkish Prime Minister or President, but, um, yeah, uh, not, not not about Kim Jong-un and not using those words. But um, he did claim that other countries call him up and ask him to talk to Erdogan for them. <laughs> Which, again, almost certainly a lie. Um, but, <laughs> we uh, send him a letter. Yeah. Um, speaking of lies, the other two he did say. So, uh, number one, here he is. Those 280 miles I built have stopped hun- like hundreds of thousands of people. Mexico is heavy, heavy COVID territory. They're highly infl- infected. I built the wall. And that wall to stop people from coming in. If she said that, and I know Sleepy Joe said it, he said, uh, we should stop the wall and I might even tear down the wall. He wants to tear down a wall that's the best border wall ever built in terms of the success of it, in terms of the quality, the best ever built. He wants to tear it down. So, um, I mean, where do you start? First of all, (laughs) no, Joe Biden doesn't want to tear down the wall. He specifically said he doesn't want to tear down the wall. He said he will not build anymore he'll stop immediately when he gets in he there will be no more wall built but he won't tear down what's already done 
it hasn't stopped hundreds of thousands of people coming in at all by any means. They just walked around, um, the, around the end of those, it. Really. <laughs> those 280 miles, at least 200 miles of that was already there. there yeah. they, that was just repaired wall that had been kind of stru- uh, scheduled to be repaired and, and rebuilt. So the, the additional wall that he's built is kind of minimal, given that the border is, uh, is well, hundreds, over a thousand miles long. And also Mexico isn't, I mean, it is heavy, heavy COVID territory. They, in fact, just passed the UK in number of deaths, I believe. But compared to the US, they're actually lower in in terms of cases and deaths and deaths per capita and just about every kind of measure. Except it has to be said, uh, case fatality rate. They are higher in that uh, sense. But the States is behind the world, don't forget, when it comes to well, yes, cases. lower than the world, yeah. So much like crime, if they did let all the Mexicans into the US, they would lower the average <laughs> um, rate of COVID. Yes, so that that's it hasn't stopped people coming in. It hasn't stopped the spread of, of coronavirus. Uh, it's all big lies. Speaking of big lies, number two, it was also real. He said this. Amazon and other companies like it, they come and they drop all their mail into a post office, not all of it, but a big percentage of it. And they say, here, you deliver it, you stupid people, you deliver it. And it costs us every time they drop a package, it costs us like $3 to deliver the package for them, $3 a package. We're losing a fortune. I said, you got to raise the rates. You're going to have to raise the rates. But Amazon, they build their big plant always near a post office. So that's not true. <laughs> what Amazon do, they do use the post office for what is called essentially the last mile. What they do is Amazon ship their packages from their distribution centers to the local area where packages are to be delivered and then the post office takes them the rest of the way because lots of America has rural areas where it would cost an enormous amount for companies like Amazon to set up their own delivery for for more rural areas that's why they do it in this country because we have less of those you know places where there's 11 miles between two houses and stuff like that so they do use the post office. The post office charges them and they don't lose any money on it. In fact, the parcels are the the one bit of the postal service that is actually making money. And there is a law that says that the post office has to charge an amount that covers their costs to deliver parcels. And that is regularly checked. And when it's checked, they don't um, transgress that law. They charge Amazon just like they charge all other individuals and retailers and bulk retailers the cost that it costs them to actually deliver those parcels. They could arguably be making more because, yes, when it's a big, huge company like Amazon, they do a deal, but they are covering their costs. It does not cost them any money to deliver Amazon parcels. So Trump is saying it because he hates Jeff Bezos because Bezos also owns the Washington Post. It's as simple as that. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that bit hadn't escaped me. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I'm still surprised he went as far as causing them stupid people. Um, yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> well, well done. Um, uh, Thank apologies, you. Apologies to, 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 to Mark. I'm still stuck on 0%. <laughs> um, where's Mark now on percentage? Uh, he's now on 24 out of 57. Uh, that is still 42 because um, we're, we're in the realms where you can you can lose a couple of goes and you, and it's change your percentage much. Well, that's these days. right then. But, yeah. Perhaps I can come on next time and lose again, and you'll still be on 42. Yeah, well, no, that would bring it down to 41. 
It's time for the part of the show that this week, at least, is called Language is Not a Logical Fallacy because I'm joined by Dr. Norma Mendoza-Denton, a professor of anthropology at UCLA, former president of the Society for Linguistic Anthropology of the American Anthropological Association, and she's one of the authors of the new book, Language in the Trump Era, Scandals and Emergencies. Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us on Fallacious Trump. Thank you for having me. So tell me a bit about the genesis of this book. How did it all come about? Well, this book came about because obviously in 2016, we were all surprised by the election results. And a whole group of us decided to put together a panel on uh, basically linguistic things that we noticed around uh, Trump's candidacy and Trump's you know, first uh, little bit of time in office. So we put together a panel at the American Anthropological Association and everybody who went to hear the talks clamored for more and uh, encouraged us to put it in as a, as a volume. So we've done that and very fortunate to be working with Cambridge University Press. And we have collected a group of 27 linguists who are exploring different aspects of language in the era of Donald Trump. One of the things that you explore in the book, and um, we talked about it on the show before, is Trump's quite frequent thing where he, he does something and then he claims he was joking or sometimes he acts like he's just asking questions and not actually making a statement. And uh, This is something that you term reactive reversal. Correct. Tell us a bit more about that. Why does he use that so much and what does he get out of it? Yeah, so this is something um, that has been noticed and, and sort of spoken of in different ways as gaslighting or... I guess, sending a trial balloon to see if that if that's going to work or not. So I've called it reactive reversal because really what it does is it's a, it's a speech, it's a discourse reversal based on the reaction that you get, right? So first, you stake a hyperbolic claim and you follow that up with logical extensions and then a huge outcry follows and that grows enough to become problematic for the administration. And then the retreat, the reversal part of it is that once you have that reaction, uh, you use plausible deniability and you reverse the claim and you say, oh, that's not what I meant. Uh, it's actually somebody else's fault or even you, you made it up by infer inferring that information. And then you, you know, optionally could create uh, some declaration of victory about whoever really claimed that he did what he originally claimed. So we see a lot of that even even just in the past couple of weeks with the um, the threat to not allow uh, students to stay, international students to stay without a full uh, with a full online course load, right? So that went up as a trial balloon. That totally pan like 17 states sued the government, and then that was reversed. And that that particular reversal didn't have uh, it didn't have too much. I guess, publicity around the reversal part of it. It does seem to be something that he does a lot. I mean, obviously, we kind of just see recurrent verbal tics and, and things that he just repeats again and again. Has his verbal style, his language use changed, do you think, since he started his campaign? Or has he always been like this? Is this something that he's kind of aiming specifically at the, the electorate? Well... I think when he was younger, there's quite a lot of clips, audio clips and video clips of when he was younger. 
And he was using language a little bit differently. He used more complex sentences and words that were lower frequency, right? So a high frequency word would be a word like the, my, fantastic, great. Those are high, high frequency words in the language. Words that are lower frequency are more complicated words and longer words usually. So that has been a change from his sort of early adulthood or middle adulthood to now is that his sentences are shorter and he uses more high frequency words. This is consistent with a lot of different interpretations. Uh, so some people would say that it indicates possible cognitive decline, but other people will try to make the argument that this is not the case at all. It's really astute uh, delivery and recipient design. So he's understanding his electorate and designing speech exactly so it lands in exactly the right place for the people to whom he's trying to talk and appeal. Yeah. So to what extent do you think he's kind of dumbing, deliberately dumbing down, if you like, his speech to to talk to a particular base? I don't know if dumbing down is the right word, uh, but definitely designing, like very carefully designing the speech so that, uh, you know, he picks up different kinds of, um, some people call them dog whistles. He'll pick up different kinds of phrases and terms and throw them out there. Um, so, you know, uh, the looting starts, the shooting starts. Mm. Um, and one thing that one of the authors, which I know you covered in your podcast earlier as, as kind of being uh, reasoning by rhyme or, you know, that, yeah. that logical fallacy of, you know, uh, of basically poetics uh, stands as my, you know, backup. But I think that, that all of these kinds of sayings are are carefully designed either by him or by people on his on his team to to be unpacked by different layers of the electorate. So I think that in fact it, it's just very deliberate and extremely smart. Okay. Unless we're completely wrong and it's just all going downhill. <laughs> <laughs> Which is yeah, it's possible. Yeah. So I mean that that kind of language that he uses, um, it, it appeals to. I mean he describes his own base or a section of it is poorly educated so that 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 group but of course he also has the rich white evangelicals mm -hmm. following him as well do do they just ignore that part of it or does it somehow appeal to them as well the way he talks i think that that it probably appeals to a wide swath of people because we you know in america we have a well we have several different traditions that he's tapping into and some of our authors allude to this. For instance, in his article, Get Them Out, Jack Sidnell talks about how, you know, when he's trying to work a crowd into these fervors of being a figure that they can look up to, he'll use these very pithy phrases, get them out, get him out. And, that, and then that picks up steam on its own, right? So get her out, get them out. And it's always... Um, you know, it's always like a three-part kind of... Yeah, lock her up and build the wall. Yeah, all of those things are related. There's a family relationship in in those things. And they move crowds. They definitely move crowds. If you compare, uh, you know, a Republican rally with a Democratic rally, I mean, there's no question to me that the, you know, the re the Democratic rallies have these long kind of, uh, you know, workers' rights types of 
multi-part uh, call and response <laughs> situations yeah. that are not, they're not very, um, they're just not very audiogenic. Yeah. Whereas a, a very short and pithy statement just gets right out there. It's imminently repeatable. You don't need a whole lot to 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 sort of remember about it or unpack it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Whereas the other ones are like the people united will never be divided. <laughs> da, 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 da. <laughs> yeah, the more nuanced kind of uh, arguments do take longer to to say, <laughs> and they're not as chanty. So <laughs> it is exactly. more difficult for for people who are actually trying to back up what they say. Yeah. Um, so in, in your essay about Latin America and messianic autocratic leaders, you talk about Trump's relationship with that kind of dictatorial uh, mm-hmm. or autocratic leader. Uh, he seems kind of obsessed with tough foreign leaders and yes. like desperately wants to be that kind of masculine strongman. The, right. the thing that, that we find amazing here is, uh, is that his followers seem to buy into it and see him mm-hmm. in that as a masculine strongman and yet he avoided the military and he's just got power because he's rich and that kind of thing so what how does he use language to to achieve that how does he kind of convince people that he is tough and one of these these strongmen i think there's several strategies that that are in use one of them is just plain tough talk so a lot of the time being tough is just really a discursive notion of you know what it means to put your foot down and to act tough in that way. So, for instance, with the protests, the recent protests over the killing of George Floyd, it was reported that Trump took the governors and berated them over not being tough on the demonstrators and the protesters. And he he routinely gets up on um, on media platforms and says that we're going to be very tough with these people, we're going to root them out. And, you know, he makes it both a rhetorical device to talk about how tough he is, how he never cries, how, you know, all of these things that would appear to him to show weakness, like he absolutely protests that he's partaking in them. And then, of course, you know, he has to have his reactive reversal sometimes, like, oh, okay, masks are now patriotic. But for a long time, you know, they were a sign of weakness. And so yeah. neither he nor Bolsonaro, until he you know, got COVID, uh, were doing anything about that. Um, so I think that that, you know, part of it is just a discursive construction on his part of toughness. And part of it is just imitating what he sees around him as being um, particularly ruthless. Like all of the praise around, you know, Kim... Kim Jong-un and I mean just head scratching yeah <laughs> that that he would do stuff like that yeah it is bizarre especially I think when it's coupled with the disdain that he seems to have for for European leaders who he sees as weaker or just in some way you know people who were very successful in their own countries like like Angela Merkel but you know not mm-hmm. his kind of leader I guess it's yeah. it is odd yeah yeah so a lot of the book was written kind of pre or in the early stages of coronavirus, or at least it went to press at that point. Do you yeah. think is mm-hmm. has his messaging around coronavirus done anything different from from what he was doing before? Do you think, or or is it just carried on themes that he already explored, just using new terms? 
I'm thinking particularly of of kind of the, his insistence on calling it the China virus and things like that, as opposed to yeah. following the scientific names. I mean, in some ways, it's it's what we've seen now is an even more exaggerated version of some of the some of the verbal patterns that he was exhibiting earlier of, you know, trying to float out these trial balloons and then reverse his stances when it doesn't work, insisting on versions of reality that cannot be backed up. One thing that he did a little bit earlier on that that seemed to me to be incredibly self-aware that I had never seen him do, exhibit that type of self-awareness, was early on when the coronavirus deaths were climbing, and he kept saying, it's going to get better, it's going to get better, it's going to get better. Uh, he was cornered. And eventually he said, well, I have to be the cheerleader. I have to be the one giving the positive spin on this. And I thought, wow, okay, that is the most self-aware thing I've ever heard him say. Like, <laughs> It's not that I'm telling you what's happening. It's that I have to put a good spin on it because I am leading the fight. So I thought that that, that part was, I mean... Not endearing exactly, but definitely, definitely seems to think that he's he's doing his best. He's, oh, he certainly thinks that, yeah. Yeah, it may not be what's necessary at this point, but but definitely doing doing you know what he can do. One of the things he started trying to do now, kind of, I think he's doing more and more is is trying to draw attention to to Joe Biden's kind of failings of of language use and bit kind of stumbles over words and things like that which seems to me like a dangerous strategy for someone like trump who i mean there's a lot more examples that we can point to of his but yeah it seems like trump is is far more guilty of all of that stuff than biden yeah but you know by using a strategy of distraction you can get pretty far uh, <laughs> by saying oh not me that guy over there you know, Sleepy Joe or whatever his, you know, latest moniker invention is going to be like that, that appears to be what draws the laugh. So many of our, of our um, authors have made the claim that a lot of Trump's entire persona is performative, right? So as long as he's performing a uh, circus master or a WWE ringleader, or, you know, people are trying to slot him into that kind of frame where he's telling them how to interpret the situation. And, you know, he's, he's sort of announcing the different characters and extracting from them what he believes is going to help him. Uh, so these very long and elaborate uh, rituals that he has of having people thank him and acknowledge him uh, when they come, on, come into a room uh, in his presence. Yeah, and some of the cabinet meetings where everyone has to go around and, and say great things about him before they start. Yeah, have you ever seen that? It's amazing. It's kind of, yeah. it really does seem like a, a kind of North Korean type thing. You know, the, everyone praising dear leader before they can yeah. get to debates. So you praise a dear leader, and if you don't do it right, you can be excommunicated. Uh -huh. right? Or at least not invited to the health briefing. Yeah, it's quite amazing. Yeah. One of the, the theories put forward in the book, I think by Janet McIntosh, is mm -hmm. that there's actually a risk of the left focusing too much on the failings of Trump's language, the kind of the misspellings and the mistakes he yeah. makes. Mm -hmm. Where is that risk? What What is the problem with, with doing that and the danger in doing that? Well, 
you know, I think the American electorate has shown that being highly educated is not necessarily uh, like a good thing or anything that will get you a bonus in American politics. So for a long time, George W. Bush did quite well playing the guy, you know, I mean, whether it was a, a, a sort of put on persona, but he definitely played like the good old boy who loved to drink and until he had to quit uh, and, you know, was quite the rabble rouser in college. And then he wound up becoming president. So people didn't expect that much from him. Uh, and I think that if, if on the left, people continually point out uh, the tiny, tiny things, people on the right are able to just ignore that and say that that's not why they voted for him. Right? They didn't vote for him to be on the national spelling bee, which clearly he couldn't <laughs> be. But, but yeah. you know, they, they, they are placing their eggs in a different side of the basket, as it were. Uh, they've elected him to uh, stand up for gun rights. They've elected him to spank the Democrats as much as possible. And they've elected him to do other things like, you know, pro-life positions and pro-police positions and stuff like that. It also seems at times like his difficulty with language in a way is is a plus. It is the the thing that, that, that makes them feel like he's one of them, which yeah. that's a weird thing for us. Like we can't quite get our head around the fact that this guy in the in the penthouse with the gold toilet is seen as an everyman and one and, you know, blue collar president in a way. And that's why it's so brilliant. That lack of highfalutin speech seems to bring him down to their level in a way. That's quite amazing that that, that he's managed to achieve that at least. Yeah. I think for a lot of people, the the paradox of people voting against their own interests, you know, it, it stands. It's such a paradox that you would select somebody who, uh, you know, who promises to kick out all the illegal immigrants, but you happen to be married to one and you never think this would happen. And then boom, he does it. Yeah. You know, people will vote in ways that are, that are still a mystery. And that's why we can't quite get a handle on what's going to happen next. Yeah, it, it is. It's amazing. I think for us, the, the sort of the most that you can hope to achieve with a volume like this is, to try to show people how to identify for themselves when they, and that's what you guys do in your podcast. When they hear a flight of fancy or a logical leap, uh, people will be able to identify, like, didn't you just say the opposite last week? Didn't you just continue to say that Obama was born somewhere else when he showed you the birth certificate not that long ago, again and again and again? Or how is this? How is coronavirus Obama's fault? Like, we want people to be able to understand the the discourse processes. And I think that that's what you're doing in your show, too. I'm a big fan. Well, we certainly try, yeah. And and there is a chapter in the book on uh, on gaslighting and, yeah. and all of the lies and falsehoods and the prevarication that he goes through. On a on a daily basis, multiple times a day, it's a, yeah. it's quite stunning. So, yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating book, and the number of different brilliant uh, professors that that have contributed to it and have come at it in from different and really interesting angles makes it a really good read, in my opinion. Yeah, thank you, thank you so much. Thank you very much for joining us. Where can people get hold of the book? People can go either to the Cambridge University Press 
website or to Amazon to order it. Excellent. And it's Language in the Trump Era, Scandals and Emergencies. That's right. Dr. Norma Mendoza-Denson, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you very much for having me. Take care. And finally, some things we really don't have time to talk about. It was the Republican National Convention last week, and this year's theme was Things That Aren't True. After night one, Fox's Steve Ducey said... At least one TV network last night was live fact-checking the RNC. Somebody would say something and they'd go, Whoa, hold on a second, that's not true. They did not do it last week for the Democrats. So what does that tell the viewer? Which is a great point, it's just not the point he thought he was making. Many people are saying Don Jr. looked like he'd taken a lot of cocaine before his speech, presumably to help him keep up with his girlfriend Kimberly Guilfoyle, who yell-screamed all the way through her speech like animal from the Muppets. Small-faced, bobblehead Charlie Kirk did some Olympic-level cherry-picking when he claimed that if you only look at C-SPAN's online streaming viewing figures, the first night of the RNC was six times more popular than the DNC. Everyone from Larry Kudlow to Mike Pence talked about coronavirus in the past tense. And Pam Bondi, the former Florida Attorney General who dropped an investigation into Trump University days after her campaign got a $25,000 donation from the Trump Foundation, gave a speech about how corrupt Joe Biden is and how nepotism is bad, which was immediately followed by a speech from Trump's daughter Tiffany and then later one by Eric, before Melania closed out night two by saying that America deserved total honesty from their president. Which is weird, because I thought she was supposed to be on the Donald side. Finally, it wouldn't be a Trump event without some good old-fashioned law-breaking. And sure enough, there were multiple violations of the Hatch Act, with Mike Pompeo addressing the RNC during an official trip to Israel, and Trump pardoning someone, and then performing a naturalisation ceremony during the campaign event. At least two of the women involved in the ceremony were not told in advance that they would be taking part in the convention, but Trump never worried about getting consent from women in the past, and damn it, he's not about to start now. In other news, the CDC have changed the guidelines yet again on who's getting tested, just to make Donald look good. After all, it doesn't matter whether you've got it or not, it's only about whether you've been tested. The new guidelines raise the bar on who should get tested, advising that some people without symptoms probably don't need it even if they've been in close contact with an infected person. The kicker on all of this? This was all changed whilst Anthony Fauci was having an anaesthetic and was actually having a minor operation. Just because the scientists are asleep doesn't mean science stops. The Democratic National Convention was such a contrast to the RNC that I had to check my cognitive bias. Can they actually be so amazingly different in tone, content and quality, or am I just looking at them through rose-tinted radical leftist glasses? Well, yes, they can be that different. Barack Obama spoke, and it was so refreshing to remember what a real president sounded like just for a few moments. He, and later Michelle, spoke about the stakes of this election with genuine concern about the prospect of four more years of Trump. Donald attacked Michelle, because of course he did, for taping her speech instead of doing it live, saying, It was taped a long time ago because she had the wrong deaths. Yes, Trump was complaining that Michelle Obama had only credited him with more than 150,000 deaths, when the real number is much higher. Jill Biden spoke about what kind of man Joe is, with anecdotes about their life together. That kind of thing was dramatically absent from Melania's speech or any of Trump's children's, because as we know, he is an awful, awful person. And Trump has also backed yet another supposed therapeutic cure for COVID. In this case, the cure is oleander. The oleander plant is highly toxic and consumption of it can be fatal. 
after you, Mr. President? The I have to say on this one, the the interview that Mike Lindell, the the My Pillow guy, gave on uh, Anderson Cooper's show was amazing. Mostly because Anderson Cooper just wasn't taking any shit about it. <laughs> <laughs> and my and the My Pillow guy, who is the one who introduced this to Trump, he has some stake in the company that is. Um, selling this this cure this miracle cure he said you know why would i do this why would i risk my reputation and anderson cooper was like well for money plus you don't have much of a reputation (laughs) (laughs) it was just brilliant blotchy white supremacist steve bannon who these days looks like arnold schwarzenegger wearing steve bannon as a disguise to try and sneak onto mars has been arrested for his part in a fraudulent fundraising project called we build the wall Bannon, who, as Josh Gondelman said, looks like the final boss you have to fight to free Willie Nelson from a dungeon, reportedly used hundreds of thousands of dollars of border wall donations for his own personal expenses, which I assume largely consisted of skin cream and KFC. I've actually lost count now of how many of Trump's campaign team and White House staff have been indicted on federal charges, but it's more than you would hope of a sitting president. No word yet on a pardon for Bannon, who somehow looks like cirrhosis and herpes had a child who grew up to be a used car salesman. Donald Trump has also called for himself and Democratic challenger Joe Biden to submit drug tests before their first debate next month. Apparently, Trump believes that there's been a sudden improvement in Biden's performance in a Democratic TV debate and thinks that, therefore, Biden must be on drugs. I'm just wondering whether the drug tests will include hydroxychloroquine or whatever keeps his skin orange. A new report from the Inspector General's office has offered up some details about Sean Lawler, the former Chief of Protocol. The Chief of Protocol is responsible for overseeing diplomacy with foreign nations and enforcing rules of decorum and etiquette. But remember, Lawler was Trump's Chief of Protocol, so you'll probably be slightly less shocked to learn that the IG's office characterised his tenure as an environment of yelling, cursing, over-consuming alcohol and intimidating and abusive behaviour. According to the report, Lawler routinely made abusive, homophobic and culturally insensitive comments to his subordinates, called a group of visiting Turkish nationals dirty and disgusting, and said that a group of visiting Japanese diplomats looked like gay porn stars and that he thought he was getting hit on and didn't want their gifts. Trump really has a knack for hiring the best people. And in British politics, finally the Liberal Democrats have elected a new leader. Well, it's kind of the leader that was already there. It's Ed Davey. On the day of the announcement, the BBC website obviously put up a headline to say that he'd been elected. However, I'm not saying the Liberal Democrats have become irrelevant. But on the same day, Boris Johnson announced that he brought in a personal trainer because he thought he looked a bit porky. That page had more hits and stayed on the front page of the BBC website for much longer. Vitally important information. (laughs) By six o'clock in the evening, Ed David gone and... Boris Johnson, be you know, having a personal trainer, was still on the most read section. <laughs> so that's all the bad arguments and faulty reasoning we have time for this episode. You can find the show notes at fallaciousTrump.com, and if you hear Trump say something stupid and want to ask if it's a fallacy, our contact details are on the contact page. If you think we've used a fallacy ourselves, let us know. And if you've had a good time, then give us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can support the show at Patreon.com/slash. F. Trump. Just like our straw man level patrons, Schmutz, Mark5293, and Amber R. Buchanan, and our true Scotsman level top patron, Lauren. You can connect with those awesome people as well as us and other listeners in the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash fallacious Trump. All music is by the Outverse and was used with permission. 
That is Mark's band, so he's giving permission for himself to use his own music. Eh, never mind. So until next time, it's been a blast for me. Thank you very much for listening. But next time, on Flacious Trump, Mark will be back, but we'll leave the last word for today to the Donald. That's right, go home to mommy. Bye. Bye. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.